This week on the Backtable Podcast. So it is being in an environment, I think, where you have the support, not just financial support, but the you know leadership who wants to support something like this because it does take time and it does take resources. And for me, you know, yeah, I don't know how to make a website, but I have people in my you know staff in our department who do, and so I was able to tap them to make up a website for me. And a day later, we had a great website. And again, that's a decision from leadership, right, to say yes. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. This is Aditya Bagrodi as your host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce our guests today, Lindsay Hampson from UC San Francisco and Gina Badalato from Columbia University. Lindsay, Gina, how are you all doing today? Doing great. Thank you so much for having us on. This is really fun. Yes, doing great. Nice to uh, join you on the podcast. Thanks for having us. Well, I, I'm super excited. Um, Gina and Lindsay, I think most people are probably quite aware, have really done some tremendous work in updating urology education, particularly around the pandemic. And I thought it might be nice just to kind of take a walk down memory lane. I'm happy to start. I remember when I first was interested in urology, somebody told me, as long as you know the anatomy and the pathophysiology and the case history, walk in any case, you're, you're going to be good to go. And I like immediately panicked. I was like, well, how am I supposed to like figure out the relevant anatomy and the pathophysiology so I can you know, really shine in the clinics and the OR? Does any of this sound familiar or resonate with you? Gina, let's start with you. Yeah, no, I think I did not expect to pursue a career in urology. I was kind of forced into a clerkship during my third year of medical school. And I was really drawn by the personalities, by the anatomy, by, you know, everything that we've come to love about the field. And then once you fall in love with it as an early career trainee, the focus then becomes, you know, how can I succeed in this field? How can I join this group of people that I admire so much? And I think a lot of it is what you were just saying, Aditya, just knowing the anatomy, engagement in the operating room, just that foundational knowledge and really kind of latching on to mentors and people that you admire and emulating them, following them around and kind of having their perspectives to keep you curious and keep you on your toes and keep you learning so that you're prepared. Yeah, I think, you know, just coming off of sub-eye season, it resonates what you say with me, Gina, in the sense of, you know, engagement in the operating room. I think as a medical student, that's so important because it's like the chance you have to kind of show who you are, show your interest. I remember actually I was a medical student at Michigan and I knew I wanted to do surgery. I didn't know at the time I was going to do urology, but I was in this crazy liver transplant case as a third year medical student. And, you know, it was like 95 degrees and my hand is serving as a retractor and I'm not looking inside the body because I'm like, you know, four people deep. And the curtain came down and I passed out and I fell backwards and hit my head on the bovie stand and woke up with like everyone surrounding me. And they took me to the emergency room. I was in a C collar. I was totally fine. But, you know, it's like a terrible experience. And all I could think in that moment was like, oh, my gosh, 
they are going to think that I can't go into surgery. And I remember that after the case was over, the attending came down to the emergency room to check on me. And he was like, you never have to come back into the operating room again. Like, you know, it's totally fine. And I was like, no, 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 I want to. I want to. I want to do surgery. Like, when can I be back in there? And so I do think like that, you know, as a medical student, when you're kind of learning about the field, it's all about kind of showing your passion and your interest and engagement in the beginning. And then it does really evolve once you get into it into thinking about, you know, what's the right path for you, not getting into it, but making it your own. Yeah. That, you know, it's funny. I, I actually have a true blood injury injection phobia. Like every time I was a kid, saw like a needle for a vaccine, I would pass out. And like my first like four or five surgeries, I was just like, oh my gosh, what's what's going on here? But it seems like everybody's able to kind of persevere and, and get there. I think we all have our embarrassing stories. And I think if you asked anyone, there's probably a moment when we've passed out in the operating room <laughs> as a medical student or even trainee or maybe later. But I think reflecting back as you, to your original question about engagement as a medical student, early career trainee, about involvement in the operating room, one thing that I find sometimes working with medical students is that they'll say, oh, you know, I wasn't given the opportunity. I was ignored. I felt like I couldn't participate. And sometimes that's obviously a reflection of what's happening in that moment in the operating room and people not being aware of the student at that moment. But I think that people can empower themselves as students, as early career learners to like ask questions, as Lindsay is saying, try to retract, try to show your presence because as people become more comfortable working with you, they will allow you to do a little bit more. So it's really these subtle things, paying attention to details, asking questions that can allow you to drift or move from being a passive observer to somebody who's actively engaged. And you're not helpless in that process because people, your presence is palpable in the subtle things that you're doing. Like I'm saying, the questions you're asking, in the instruments you're handing, the way you're retracting and how you help position the patient or transport the patient on these small things can really help build trust, which is really the part of active engagement. I think that's true, too. I mean, as you think about resident engagement as well, I mean, all of what you said just now, Gina, holds true, right? When residents come to an operating room prepared and, you know, they've learned about the patient, they've read old op notes for similar cases, they've looked at the books to know the anatomy. When they're helping you position and they know what the positioning is, you know, there's all these kind of subtle things that happen in the beginning of a case that kind of show you as a faculty member whether a resident's prepared or not. And I think, you know, a resident's involvement in a case totally depends on their preparation because ultimately we have to meet the learner where they're at. And that means that if they've put in the work ahead of time to kind of prepare as best they can, then they're going to get more out of the case and and hopefully, you know, be able to progress more than they otherwise would. Yeah, I think that's a fundamental thing. And one of the parts about actually being a rotating student that was always so challenging to me is that the expectations or the instruction or how to be helpful without being obtrusive it was all extremely vague and I, I hear you loud and clear Lindsay for the common cases that I do I have videos where I am explaining everything going in my brain in explicit gory detail and the residents typically will review it before they can passively or actively demonstrate to me that they've kind of incorporated some of that and then it gets better 
And I think this is just like, you know, an example of, you know, it seems like such a fundamental thing, right? Setting expectations. So we've made it into residency, thankfully. And now you're an intern. Again, I always felt like that was kind of like a what's going on here type of scenario. How do I help? But, you know, part of me is just exhausted. I want to get get out of here. Maybe, you know, reflecting on your on your time during residency, talk a little bit about were there clear expectations, digestible, finite resources for you to review, to educate yourself on so that you could succeed, not of course, only in urology, but then, you know, colorectal and transplant and so forth. Does that sound like it happened or didn't happen? Yeah, I mean, I think Gina and I just put a series together. We co-directed the Intern Academy for the American Urological Association, and it was a great session for interns really focused on kind of the heavy hitting topics that we thought, you know, interns would be likely to be exposed to so that they had some basis of knowledge. And the last session, actually, we had a resident panel where we kind of talked about, okay, you know, what do you wish you had known as an intern? You know, what were your takeaways as an intern? And we had some residents from various levels participate. And it was really interesting to hear their discussions and their recollections, even if it was a year or a few years prior as to what intern year had been like. And I think that in the end, what everybody really echoed was how important it was to realize in the beginning that it's okay to ask for help that it's okay not to know everything. Like that's kind of your role as an intern is to just be a sponge and be learning. And so no one expects you to know everything at all times. And so I think one of the biggest things is just knowing that that's okay and to ask for help when you need it. Because in the end, yeah, there's going to be different expectations on different rotations depending on what service you're on or what your kind of duties are of your rotation. But ultimately, I think for all interns, really the goal is just to get like a basic foundation of how to be a doctor and how to work in a team and knowing when to ask for help and knowing when something is too much to handle. And I find with interns that that's actually the hardest part for them because they're these amazing people who have done so much and they're so accomplished and they've scored high on all their tests and they've done all the things. And in the end, the hardest part for them is knowing when to ask for help, knowing when it's too much because it feels like a failure, even though that's your role as an intern to be sitting in that discomfort. Yeah, that's so true. I think reflecting back on the AUA Academy, not only did we have that panel, but we had Dr. Simone Thevasilian gave a great opening lecture about some things to know going into intern year. One of the main points she made was kind of forgiving yourself and understanding that there's a progression and that many of the people you've grown to admire, people that you have seen that have brought you into the field, they're at a different point in their career, but we all enter this trajectory where we're, we don't know the answers. And so I think that's a, that's a great point, Lindsay, about knowing to ask for help and having kind of that you know, grace to forgive yourself as you go along that trajectory. I certainly recall intern year, nobody sits you down and sets expectations often or clearly, or at least in my experience several years ago, that wasn't, that was like you're handed your list, you started pushing the computer around and you started making rounds and taking notes with what the chief resident was saying. And so I think that's, that's a huge part of it is just I tell this to students and residents when they're starting new rotations or working at new sites, the first 24 to 48 hours, you should just observe. 
Look at how people treat one another. Look at who they go to for help. Who do they ask questions? How do they interact with one another? How do they manage problems? How do they escalate things? You should see what the culture is like. Take that all in and digest that and kind of use that as you move forward to figure out how you're going to work within this system. So that was kind of my strategy in turn year. Yeah, I definitely remember starting intern year on liver transplant nights and thinking, I have no idea, you know, what I'm doing here. And there is hardly anyone in the hospital to back me up. And, you know, here I am holding like three pagers. And I mean, we were writing paper orders at that time and, you know, running around to different halls to try to sign all the orders. So there is some of this kind of trial by fire and I think the good senior residents will be thoughtful about it and will set the interns up well in terms of thinking about what is the structure? Who do you go to for help? What can you handle? What's okay not to be able to handle? And so those really good chief residents, you really learn a lot from. I think you also learn from senior residents that maybe fall short too, because they also give you something to learn from. And as you're going through residency, you're always picking up, you know, what do I want to do as a leader? Who do I want to be as a leader? And so whether it's good or bad examples you're seeing, you're still learning from that and you're still finding your own style and you're still honing your own kind of acumen and learning what to do or what not to do. You know, at, I guess stepping back, at some point, either you all or the AUA felt that an intern boot camp was an unmet need. Like clearly you're not doing something for the sake of doing it or the AUA is not investing people's time and resources into doing this. And I totally think it was an unmet need. Like I would have loved if somebody sat down with me and said, hey, Aditya, you've done all these things to, you know, you're in a great urology program, or apparently you're hardworking, et cetera, but you're not going to know things or your like most important job is if your spidey sense is telling you that something's wrong, tell somebody about it, you know, just like 101. And maybe talk a bit about, you know, this process like and of course we'll get to some of the other initiatives that you've that you've embarked upon but across the educational spectrum observing or stepping back into the role of a student or an intern or a junior resident senior resident fellow faculty when you're like you know this the way it is isn't perfect and I'm going to do something about it and here's how I'm going to go about doing something about it yeah i think so Stepping back, what you were saying about creating a curriculum for interns, this was actually something that Jay Raman, the chair of education for the AUA, approached Lindsay and I to help run the didactic series for. And it was designed to be a companion series to a hands-on component, which was run by Ahmed Ghazi and Sami Samra. So Ahmed has developed all of these hydrogel models that were used in the, the hands-on component. And ours was different in that it was a didactic series that would unfold over the course of several weeks and really help take people through the essentials, the fundamentals they would need as they go through intern year. And so Lindsay and I were really excited because, as you're saying, there really that wasn't, there wasn't that much information out there that met interns where they were. There's Campbell's, there's a lot of sophisticated lectures and surgical videos for senior residents. There's information for medical students, but there's nothing really for early career residents that meets them where they are, where they can 
really have an expert walk them through the fundamentals to something more sophisticated about what they'll need to learn to explain why something's an emergency, why we do the things that we do, and to create a space where they can ask questions where they wouldn't feel like everybody knows more than them. And so we wanted to do that, and we really wanted to start with the fundamentals, like the emergencies and the guidelines, and that's really what the curriculum's about. We also wanted it to be, we both have a lot of experience with virtual curricula, and we know that that's how modern learners get their information. They might go to a textbook to cross-reference things. They might look up some other material in written form, but the interns need things at their fingertips. They need nuggets of information, just like this, where they can sit down, they can listen for an hour for 45 minutes and really feel like they've gotten the information that they need. That's palpable. That's on an iPhone. That's easily accessible. So that was really our mission. Yeah. And I think we we saw through COVID, and we'll probably talk about that later, but you know, we saw that there were were really differences in the evaluations of junior learners versus senior learners in terms of what types of lectures or, you know, sessions they found most useful. And it made us really realize, take a step back and realize that some of what's taught is really at a higher level and that there is some there are some basic assumptions that we make when we're teaching residents about what they what their knowledge base is. And when you think about the intern, I mean, their knowledge base is just getting started. So we really wanted to give something. And it's not just early career residents. It's also, you know, advanced practice providers that are starting out and trying to shift from, you know, either right out of school or shift from another field to urology. There's a lot of these kind of early career urology learners that need some information to guide them. And people these days, they want to listen to a podcast when they're driving to and from work you know, so that they're making use of their time and that, you know, when they get home, they feel like they've already put in their studying or their learning and, and they can enjoy their time at home. Yeah. My mind is like kind of about to explode right now, just kind of unpacking that little bit right there. I mean, first off, you know, there's generational changes in how people are educating. There's work-life balance. There's, I mean, maybe stepping back, I'm guessing in some form or fashion during our training, it was a pre-op conference, which is kind of case review, imaging review, grand rounds, and like a Campbell series, like maybe three hours of didactics, plus quite a bit of home education, AUA update series, Campbell's, Henman's, maybe a, a Weeder's pocket guide for a kind of quick refresher. But I don't get the sense that any of that's happening much anymore, for better, for worse, likely for, for better. And, you know, at some point, I'm mean, even for back table, the idea was, I don't know, maybe you talked about like complex catheter placements. Like it is very hard to find a resource that says, here's how you should put a complex catheter in, you know, maybe start with this. And if that doesn't work, try this. And if that doesn't work, try this. And if you have to go to super pubic tube, you know, so on and so forth. And like, the initial impetus for back table was like, what are the practical tidbits of disease management? And I think it's, you know, been effective. And, and actually to your point, Lindsay, not just among junior learners, but trying to present, I, I actually find that more seasoned learners really appreciate a refresh on fundamentals because our field is changing so fast. I mean, the microhematuria guys, they can like barely, you know, kind of keep up with the, the rapid progress. And, you know, I would say that, you know, in my mind, I see you all as, you know, true innovators, revolutionaries in, in education. When was your kind of aha moment that, something's got to change and 
and we and actually feeling empowered to change it? I think that's a really good question. I think I've been involved in education in various ways, you know, which has changed over time. And as I got involved, my personality is always thinking about, you know, what could we do better? What could we change? How can we adapt? So, I mean, to some extent, that is what motivates me and drives me. But I think really in the educational sphere, you know, a lot was happening at the same time and and COVID really just was a huge impetus for it. We were already talking about, you know, how do we educate people better, the flipped classroom, case-based, you know, learning. We were already talking about, you know, the use of virtual and how do we integrate that. We're already talking about what are the generational differences that we're seeing among residents and trainees and how do we better cater to those learning styles. But it was COVID that really forced us, honestly, to make those changes. And it was literally, you know, COVID hit, hospitals shut down. And my residents came to me and said, we have no cases scheduled for the foreseeable future. This is prime time of residency where I need to be learning and, you know, honing my skills. And we need to do something. You know, what do we do in this time? And, you know, it really forced us to create this kind of virtual online platform. And we were lucky because everyone else was shut down, too. And so it became this way to really create a very collective and kind of community-based approach to education where I literally just put a Google spreadsheet together with a bunch of topics that I thought might be interesting and sent it out to anyone who wanted to sign up. And within a week, we had 80 spots filled from everyone from across the country signing up to give a lecture. And it was really amazing because in our field, we're so lucky that we have people who are such good educators and also such dedicated educators. They they truly want to help advance people's knowledge. And this was people just volunteering to give a lecture that they had or even that they didn't have and they put together for a series. And I, I think Gina, I'll let her share her experience too. But without COVID, I think that the same process would have happened. It just wouldn't have happened as quickly. Sounds like telehealth. It was almost right there, but it took, took the pandemic just to kind of warp speed things. And and so that was primarily with the COVID lecture series. Is that right, Lindsay? Yeah, that's right. It was, you know, focused through this kind of urology COVID, which was a really collaborative group. And Gina had kind of a similar thing going on on the East Coast as well. Yeah. But before we pivot to me, I have to comment that Lindsay put together that entire series and the website. And what was it? Three days, Lindsay? It became a national phenomenon. That was incredible. And really, that was like the inspiration for us to kind of start our own East Coast version of it. I remember I was emailing and having the same conversations with some of our residents and one of our residents who had recently graduated. It was in fellowship at another program, Alex Small. And we're saying, we should do this. We should approach the New York section. We should do this. We were talking about it. I'm like, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to send that email. <laughs> I sent an email. Lou Cavusi was then the president of the New York section. He said, yeah, you guys, we we will support you. And so along with um, two other residents, Michael Smigelski, Mian Mobisagi, and Alex Mong, who was then a fellow, we started the New York version kind of the COVID lecture series. It's called Empire, the Educational Multi-Institutional Program for Instructing Residents. Similar experience where we circulated spreadsheets, people just to lecture on their areas of expertise, and people signed up in droves. I think the other thing I learned was that 
you know, the residents are great leaders and you really just have to stand back and let them do their thing. This was all, that was the beauty of Empire, I think, is that the residents were kind of the wind beneath those the wings. They monitored, they moderated every session. They thought about the speakers they wanted to invite. They developed subsequent series about, you know, a hidden curriculum or non-clinical topics. And they have sustained, they've continued to sustain this series. And it was great because once you get a community of people together, it's so much better than just listening to the same people from your department lecture over and over again on the topic. And you realize, you know, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. We can all work together to educate our next generation of trainees. It's not about one program. It's not even about one section. It's like, look, Lindsay and I are different coasts, but we share a similar passion. We've come together. And like, we, we realize that we're stronger by working together and pooling our resources than trying to do things in little silos. Yeah, and I think, you know, Gina and I also come from programs or sections that have, you know, a lot of resources and expertise. And there are plenty of programs who don't have expertise in all the sub-disciplines of urology and don't have somebody to give the infertility lectures, you know, or the gender-affirming care lectures. And so one of the big benefits, too, was really for people in some of these programs that may have had much smaller faculty that now they had a hugely expanded opportunity for learning and to hear different perspectives. And, you know, I know for my residents, they loved hearing lectures. They got on topics from UCSF, but now they were hearing lectures from other people from across the country and contrasting what they were learning there from what they heard from, you know, their own faculty. And it's so important to get that other perspective. And it resulted in really interesting discussions, too, about, oh, you know, I heard about somebody at this institution doing things this way or thinking about things a different way. And why do we do it like this here? And, you know, those are important kind of discussions to have, questions to ask. And you don't know to have them until you're exposed to something else, because each each residency program is in such a silo that it was an opportunity to get outside of that. And once we did, we realized how much people enjoyed it, how much they thought there was a benefit to thinking about something on a national scale, being a part of something bigger, feeling like they were getting the same education across the country. Totally. I mean, first off, I think the whole kind of community-based approach is it's like a no-brainer. I, I feel really lucky that in the little like kind of podcast community, it's super duper supportive. There's like zero competition. Everybody shares their things that work and things that haven't worked so well. And I, and I loved, uh, Gina, when you said, you know, like, I'm just going to do it, right? Like, I feel like, I mean, backing up a step, anytime you hear like an amazing researcher, there was like, it was like a simple clinical observation and then I like wanted to study it and like, you know, but it starts out with an observation and clearly during COVID, it was like, here's an observation as there was a big gap taking place for our residents. I mean, just doing it, okay, fine. You get an email list and you send out an email and you host like a Zoom webinar, but there's more to it. I mean, a website that still kind of like intimidates me, but time, your time, resources. I mean, at some point there's, whether it's just, you know, funding your time or making it a worthwhile endeavor for the, for the guests. Can you talk a little bit about that um, servers to host and record, you know, these multi gigabyte lectures? I'm just kind of curious, walk, walk me through that process a bit. Yeah, I think from my side, 
there is a lot of support required. And I was really fortunate to be at an institution that, you know, that was something that was valued. Because if I wasn't, then I wouldn't have been able to spend my time to embark on this endeavor, right? (laughs) This kind of crazy idea and let's see where it goes. But, you know, so it is being in an environment, I think, where you have the support, not just financial support, but the you know leadership who wants to support something like this, because it does take time and it does take resources. And for me, you know, yeah, I don't know how to make a website, but I have people in my you know staff in our department who do. And so I was able to tap them to make up a website for me. And a day later, we had a great website. And Again, that's a decision from leadership, right? To say, yes, we have resources. We're going to devote them to you. We're going to pivot them so that you can make use of them. And the same thing with recording all of these lectures, you know, putting them all up online, keeping track of schedules. We had a fantastic administrator who helped us. And again, it's a decision from leadership to say that, yes, you can take that resource and use it. And we also had residents moderate our sessions. And we thought of that really as sponsorship. It was a chance for the residents to kind of get their name out there, get to interact with some of these faculty from across the country who were coming in and giving lectures. And so we saw this as a benefit to the residents to be able to kind of be involved in the sessions and ask some questions, facilitate the discussion at the end. And I think that worked out really well for the residents. They really love doing it. So Gina, similarly to what you guys were doing and having the residents involved, I think it makes a made a big difference. And in any of these things that you're doing, you're trying to create opportunities for people and make use of them as mentorship, sponsorship opportunities where you can. Yeah, I totally agree. I think COVID not only kind of unearthed the need, but also paradoxically gave us the time to do this, which we normally wouldn't have. I honestly didn't know what I was getting myself into at first. We actually needed like four people to run a Zoom session, one to host, one to do the chat, one to moderate and like race people <laughs> drawing on the screen or silence people. That were on, I, we had no idea recording, uploading. It was a tremendous amount of work and it was done with support from the New York section, Michelle Paoli, our administrative director, was tremendously helpful. We got to use the resource of their web designer and also just the blood, sweat, and tears of these residents that were working on it. And to sustain it, we've continued to rely on New York section resources, but also, as you were saying, Lindsay, this is a labor of love for the residents. We recently rolled out a new series, an in-service series for the residents that one of the Montefiore chief residents, Jennifer Nauheim, led with another group of residents, and they picked speakers, they chose lectures, they moderated the sessions, created the YouTube channel. These were all things that they did, again, to help their peers, but also learn in the process. So you need the combination of resources and invested learners that are going to sustain it. And I would say one more thing that was really important was being adaptable and open to change. Um, We got a ton of great comments from listeners who would email me or like email our administrator saying, we got this email one time that was like, you know, I love the Urology COVID series. Have you thought about putting it onto a podcast so that I can like listen to it through a podcast app? And I was like, yeah, why aren't we doing that? That's a great idea. Let's do it. And the next day we're you know, on Spotify and we had our little logo, (laughs) you know, and 
a lot of people had great suggestions, whether it was, you know, staff or residents or students who were listening and being able to take those and kind of adjust on the fly, I think really made things evolve and made things a lot better. And one of the things that Gina and I both, I think, experienced was this kind of adaptability and ability to be quick on our feet and evolve over time. And that is something that I think it, it makes it hard for the AUA to function in the same way because there's a lot more bureaucracy and, you know, everything has to be approved through a board and there's, you know, you're paying certain staff for certain things and their time can't be pivoted. And there's a reason for all of that. It just means that when you're doing it on your own, it is a little bit easier to be nimble in that way. Yeah. I mean, the the first thing that I just love is, uh, you know, the I'm going to go for it. And even if it kind of falls a bit flat from the get go, there's always an opportunity to improve and improvise. Actually, Backtable started out as a uh, app intended for physicians to talk about devices and stents and sutures because we thought that it really wasn't the best fit for us to be getting all of our information from sales reps that have a vested interest in their product. And then kind of COVID hit and adapted into this kind of conversational style, practical learning. So definitely love that element to it. And then, you know, for any listener out there, the next generation of learning is coming. And, you know, I personally find it to be very inspiring just to give it a shot. You know, there's find some people that are interested in supporting you and supporting your ideas. And I mean, who knows the next big educational virtual reality simulator like mega product could be you know a third year medical student who's like man i wish that was around when i was a student and and you can really change things for the better question so much of your all's work and efforts have focused on virtual education how does that kind of juxtapose to in-person education in your mind yeah everybody's missed kind of getting together in person. And so I think there's, you know, a lot that you get just by the community of being in person. At our institution, we have kind of a mix. Some of our sessions are in person, some are virtual. But I think we've continued to rely a lot on some of the recorded virtual education episodes. We, our faculty routinely, you know, the kind of pre-work before you show up for didactics is watching a video from, you know, Empire or Urology COVID so that you have a baseline knowledge. And then when you show up to the didactics, whether it's virtual or in person, you're doing case-based scenarios so that learning that used to be on a textbook happening before now is, you know, more of this kind of video or audio learning or relying heavily on the guidelines, but really making it a part of the kind of pre-work so that people feel like they come and are prepared and can put that knowledge to use. So it's interesting how we've, we really do continue to use the virtual recorded lectures, even if we're doing in-person sessions. They're, they're just used a little differently now. Yeah, same. We, I think if you're going to be in person, you kind of want more, you know, you're not going to just have someone talking at you, but you're going to apply the knowledge. So we've done that. We have case-based series for a resident. I think I actually learned this from one of Lindsay's papers from the Gold Journal, where she like pulled your audience participants from the COVID lecture series and their favorite way of learning was just by cases, not by guidelines, not by like video, surgical video, but cases. So 
we took that and made kind of like an oral boards style, more Socratic method of teaching for our residents in the case-based series, the second half of their academic year. So they're expected to know the guidelines, know the content, and then they're going to be presented with a case that's going to unfold over time and you could be called on and you're going to have to answer the question. So it's a lot more interactive. We've got our journal clubs are that way too, where everyone's expected to have done the reading, understand the background, and then come to this dinner ready to talk about higher level questions. So we treasure the in-person time a lot more, but with that comes the expectation that you're going to come to that prepared because we're going to use that time for higher level type of content. Yeah. And I, I think you make a good point around that too, Gina, that People don't want to use their time these days just to listen to somebody talk. They want to be engaged. So even if it's virtual that you're doing something, it's interactive. And I think it makes it a lot more interesting for people. I think people are more likely to be prepared when they know that it's they're going to be talking about higher level concepts or you know might be called on. I always tell my residents, if you have your video off on a virtual didactics, you are the first one that I'm going to call on. So turn your videos on, be engaged, because this is, you know, you can watch a lecture anytime, but this is my time and your time. It's our time that's really precious. So like, let's use it to, you know, make it meaningful. You know, I, um, I do something very similar. I think most of us do where, hey, we're going to talk about penile cancer at Campbell's lecture. Why don't you listen to this podcast by Phil Spies, who kind of walks through the whole thing and it makes it a little bit more digestible. And I have actually found that even on the patient facing side, there's so much information that's got to be stuffed into a 15 or 20 minute visit that I will, I've created some patient facing resources on prostate cancer and Gleason score and staging surveillance and surgery and radiation. And I'll send this in a QR code. It's via David Kane's well-prepped app. And when the patients come in, we're having a fruitful conversation versus them going, you know, deer in the headlights and all they're kind of focusing on is they have cancer and they think they're going to die. So I, th I think the same kind of concept applies. You do your pre-rearing, you have an expectation, which I think is really, really nice. It's finite, it's digestible. It's not 45 page pages of ultra dense Campbell's and, you know, you can refine it with that on the back end. But I love it. I love it. That I think that's got to be the way to go. Do you ever feel like we're getting to a point where there's almost like resource overload? I mean, there's, of course, like study after study showing that the quality and quantity of information that exists is over the top. I mean, journals and this and that and newspapers. How, how do you all kind of deal with that or do you direct them towards vetted resources, COVID, empire? Yeah, I mean, one comment I would make around that is that we do know that different people learn differently. And so in some sense, it's actually really nice to have a diversity of resources because it allows people to learn based on their own learning style. And it's really interesting. I was at Ohio State a few months ago and I was talking to their residents about, you know, how they learn. And, you know, everybody knows themselves. They've kind of figured themselves out at this point and they know, yes, I'm an auditory person. I only listen to podcasts and that's like the source of my information. Other people need to write things down and take notes and or look at resources that are written. And I think it's helpful to have the option for people to kind of get information both in different modalities and from different perspectives, because again, it deepens your knowledge to learn something from different perspectives or different 
ways in a way that I think having a single resource, you know, our old school like Campbell's, that was our resource, right? It didn't offer the multitude of opportunities for learning. Yes, it means you have to figure out what works for you and that's not going to be the same for every person. But I think in the end, we're better for it. I don't know, Gina, I'm interested in your thoughts. No, I think it's true. I think everybody learns differently. I think that there's room to organize and streamline the resources that we do have better, like really having, you know, integrating where do you go to AUA University for this versus the update series versus the guidelines and Campbell's. And I think that that and having surgical videos that really walk you through soup to nuts and not just assume that somebody understands all the anatomy if they're more of an early career learner. So I think that there's still room to organize some of this a little bit more and stage it for people according to what stage of learning they're at. Just think about when I look at an intern or a PGY-1 or 2 do their first in-service practice questions, their mind is going to explode because there's citations about a research paper and a guideline. And, you know, it's confusing about where to look for what's important. And so I think it would be helpful to kind of stage that. And there's a wealth of information, but to stage it and to help people understand what they should look at first and then progress through. So there's definitely room to organize that a little bit more, in my opinion. Yeah. And I think Gina and I have talked about how to do that going forward to try to help make resources, pinpoint which resources are helpful for what what people, what level you are, how far advanced you are in your career, how you learn best. Totally. I mean, I, I think even the, over the course of my time in urology, the core curriculum has kind of evolved as, as a fairly premier educational resource for residents. And I mean, I kind of remember in its inception 10, 15 years ago, not to like ultra date myself, where it was kind of this like hodgepodge side gig. And now it's like amazing. And and I'm sure that'll continue to evolve. And I also generally tend to agree with information overload. I think there's a very organic component within our community, depending on where you are. We haven't really touched upon kind of CME out a few years, but that need and content may be different from an intern. There's probably some overlap, but I think people do hear about various resources, they check them out. I think that's one thing about, you know, upcoming generations is is they're very technology savvy and they're happy to download an app or add, subscribe to a podcast or a YouTube channel and then kind of pick and choose what works for them. So I tend to agree. And um, I mean, maybe, you know, in a few years, it'll be a, a bit different. But like you said, it's only gotten better. Totally, totally. And I mean, it's what does better mean? Is it, is it the content? Is it the guess? Is it the way that it's coming across? Is it the audio quality? I mean, what does better actually look like? So you guys have, you know, really, I, I think, ushered in like virtual learning, shareable resources in like a mega way. I'm curious, what gets you excited about, you know, the next five, 10 years in education? That is tough. I mean, part of it is that I don't know, I guess being open to opportunities. Like you said, Edithia, earlier, I think you were saying, you know, maybe there's a third year medical student who has like the next best, greatest idea. And I think one thing that Gina and I have realized is that being open to ideas and residents, trainees, students who come with ideas is like one of the best things that you can do in the field of education because 
these are the boots on the ground. These are the people who are like living it. And so if they have ideas about ways to improve or what we could do, in my mind, I always just have my ears open and whoever comes to me with an idea that they may think is crazy, I always want to hear about it because they're the ones who really have great ideas about where we can go from here. And so it may be, I mean, you know, yes, maybe we have some ideas about things that we can do to try to fine tune or or make advances. But in the end, I actually think the biggest leaps are probably made by current learners who have ideas about how to improve and change things. And we just have to support that. Like we just have to facilitate and give them a platform and make their ideas come to life. In my mind, that that's kind of what I see as our role. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it's not just the innovation that makes these things successful that we've pioneered, you know, the virtual lecture. It wasn't just the innovation, but it was this idea that the residents are invested in and can help shape the future of their own learning. And we're listening to you and we're going to do this with you. I think that's a huge statement to make. And I think that's it's not the technology, it's the partnership and the adaptability that Lindsay is talking about that makes programs successful. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it's really nice being an academic because you're surrounded by young learners all the time that have got new ideas. And in addition to, of course, the, uh, you know, the medical and surgical elements of our field, there's other parts of, you know, being a good citizen and a doctor and a urologist that are, I think, more and more important to upcoming generations. And you're automatically kind of plugged in to an extent, but with that being said, you're still continuing to evolve and so forth. So I couldn't agree more. And I mean, some of the technologies that are out there, virtual reality, bringing in AI stuff that we're in the middle of interview season, you talk to these amazing applicants and you're like, oh my gosh, this is just uh, tremendous. And uh, hey, that's really cool that you got your startup going through. Any way we can help kind of sponsor you and get the word out. Here's a couple of different folks to connect with or come on the podcast and talk about it. It's super duper exciting. And maybe I know we're getting right there. Biggest outstanding unmet needs in education. What are you still like, man, we can really, really do a better job with this. I think I was, I was talking to Lindsay about this recently, about one thing we learned, actually one of our residents published a paper on this, Mian Movisagi, about how residents learn the steps of surgery is watching videos and their number one source is is YouTube many times. And so I do think that there's room to continue to create a library of surgical videos that are very granular and don't start midway in a surgery, but actually this is the anatomy, like orient somebody and talk somebody through the steps. Really, again, this more geared towards resident instruction and not just I'm going to submit an abstract on this cool surgical technique and people are going to absorb the information from that. But really, like, these are the steps. These are the instruments you'll require. These are my tips. And so somebody can start with that fundamental information and then learn from there as they prepare for the case and match it up with what they're reading in the book or in the surgical atlas or what have you. And similarly, you know, the idea of being able to have those videos from a diversity of perspectives, right? It's you're not just learning how people do it at your institution, but you potentially are able to see how others are doing it, too. And that gives you additional knowledge and tips and tricks and 
questions to ask in the operating room. And again, it kind of, if you think about that on a virtual scale and a national, international scale, it gives you opportunities to really go beyond what can you just do by making a video library at your own institution? You know, how can we pool resources to really be able to get different perspectives and learn from experts in the field? Yeah, I think it's really cool how our field, and especially more recently, really has this team sport mentality where it's not, it's got to be me or or not. It's really how can we do this together and putting our egos aside, approaching with some humility. And that I think really has been the success and the driver of these really national and international collaborations, bringing in all these perspectives and, and even having your own institutional thought leaders support it, opine on it and incorporate it in their teaching. Well, I, I'm excited for the for education in urology. I think it's a really cool time to be involved. And again, I encourage anybody that's going through the process and they're a learner and they and they identify an unmet need to, you know, go for it, seek it out. There's a whole community out here of people that want to support you and see you succeed. And, you know, by all means, a, a secondary intention of having Lindsay and Gina was on for me to pick up some pointers myself on how to continue to grow as an educator. So thank you for your time, Lindsay and Gina. I really, really appreciate it. Amazing resources out there. Engage your institution and um, let's see what comes next. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Devante Delbrun. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Kennebrew. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.